I think we really need gyroscope equipped lunchboxes. That's the next the next level. I know, I know. Right now you're probably thinking, come off it. I do not need a gyroscope in my lunchbox. But just you wait until you hear this episode. I mean, you didn't think you needed gold cutlery till we introduced you to Zoe Laughlin way back in episode one. And that lunchbox visionary is Dan Pashman. He's our guest on today's episode. He has a food podcast of his own. You may have heard of it. It's called The Sporkful. But right now, you're listening to Gastropod. And I am Nicola Twilley. And I'm Cynthia Graber. So, Dan is a fellow member of the food podcasting community. A small but very special group. And he recently published a book full of the kind of tips and tricks about eating that he shares on The Sporkful. It's called Eat More Better. And yes, it is tongue-in-cheek, but it's also a very seriously researched guide to improving your everyday eating experiences. Some of it is even based on science. So we sat down to talk to Dan all about airline food and scented soaps and sandwich sogginess. And, of course, the hot-button issue in food that is surface-area-to-volume ratio. Welcome to Gastropod. Thank you. Thanks, guys. I have to say, I was really excited to see in your book the part where you talk about inverting the order of what we eat, dinner, lunch, and then breakfast, because that is the episode that we just released, which was all about breakfast. (laughs) I'm glad. I didn't get a chance to listen to that one. So what, what did you guys find in that episode? Basically, the whole episode was Cynthia trying to prove that she's not a weirdo for eating like greens, fish sauce, and kimchi for breakfast. So Yeah, pretty much. And so my book says that you're right. <laughs> yeah, Cynthia. so I loved it. <laughs> and I think you both might be weirdos. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, weird is probably the right word to describe it because, you know, society decides what's weird and what's not weird. But Nikki, if we're all doing it, doesn't that make it normal? <laughs> That's always my argument. There are billions of people in the world who eat this type of food for breakfast. <laughs> That's right. Isn't pho a, a popular breakfast dish in Vietnam? Kanji. <laughs> I feel like I'm back in high school. You guys are ganging up on me. Let's, <laughs> let's get... I have well, a question. I, yes. I want to. I want to. I'm going to just dive in out of the millions and millions of things that I was curious about in your book. I actually feel as though surface area to volume ratio, or SATVOR as you call it, is the defining theme of your book. It, it, it really shapes a lot of eating experiences, as I came to understand. Yeah, it's the very first thing I talk about, which, which admittedly is a tough sell. It's tough to start off a book um, and be like, all right, everyone, get excited. We're going to talk about surface area to volume ratio. You know, like, I could feel the kids in the back of the high school classroom falling asleep as I was writing it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's like, I, 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 it's like when I started doing the Sporkful podcast and then started working on the book, I just kept, without even trying, kept coming back to surface area to, to volume ratio or SATVOR. And I was like, finally, high school biology is paying off. Like, it relates to ice cubes. It relates to fried chicken and pasta and so many different areas because it's all about the ratio between how much of the food is exposed to its surroundings and how much of the food is on the inside. And that actually leads perfectly to a topic that I want to ask you about. So I'm not a sandwich expert, but uh, as a kid, I loved grilled cheese. And of course, for the perfect grilled cheese, the outside has to be nice and crispy and the inside has to be soft and gooey. And you have some interesting science on what can kind of make my grilled cheese sandwich lose its crisp before I finish eating it. So can you uh, kind of explain that? Yeah, I mean, anytime you you put a hot food into an enclosed space uh, that is a different temperature, you change its temperature and then enclose it, you're going to get steam, and the steam is going to turn to moisture and create condensation. And in the case of crisp, anything crispy, 
it's going to turn soggy. That's why you don't want to take hot French fries and throw them in a bag and seal up the bag because they're going to turn soggy. Grilled cheese comes off the griddle. It's hot and crispy on, on the top and bottom. You put it down flat on a plate. The bottom side is going to steam up and get condensation and turn soggy. Maybe your first couple bites will still be crispy, but by the time you get to the second half of that grilled cheese, you've lost half your crisp. And like that's one of the that tactile sensation of the light crisp on the outside and the and the gooey cheese in the center is a quintessential part of the deliciousness of a grilled cheese. And so what I recommend is that people slice your grilled cheese in half diagonally and then uh, set both halves on the plate, set them upright, standing up like mountaintops, like mountain peaks. And that allows airflow around all parts of the bread, and that allows the steam to escape and prevents condensation and preserves crisp even as your sandwich cools. You could also have an assistant just hold it for you in between bites. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, but you'd have to be careful about where their fingers are touching because the parts where their fingers, you'd want them to, to do an edge crust hold so the airflow could continue to be uh, preserved around all of the crispy parts. Uh-huh. Special training for my assistant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to I want to stick with sandwiches and sogginess and move on to another scientific issue, and that is gravity. So I imagine a lot of listeners who are in school or go to an office, they pack lunch, and sometimes maybe those lunches are on rolls. And you use gravity to explain how to pack a roll-based sandwich. So how does that work? You know, so much of the things I talk about in the book are the kinds of things that you kind of maybe half already knew. Like it's probably crossed your mind that, that when you get to the second half of your grilled cheese, the bottom was soggy. It's probably crossed your mind that like you pack a sandwich to go and, and the bottom bun, if, there's, if it's saucy, the bottom bun turns soggy. And it's just like you just uh, – uh, so much of, of the book and my work is about just encouraging people to – Take that one more step to, to just think a little bit more about the problem that has been in front of you all along, that's probably been bugging you subconsciously, and to see that there's a, a, a simple solution for it. So in, in the case of the, the roll, you know, the top half, the domed top half of a roll and the flat bottom half, they're not the same shape and they're not the same thickness. Typically, the top is going to be thicker, depending on how it's sliced, but usually the top is thicker. And so it's like... Gravity is pulling the moisture down. So whatever whatever liquid, whether it's juice or sauce or condiment or something, as your sandwich sits, if it's wrapped and traveling with you, it, all the moisture is going down into that bottom bun, which is the bun that's the part of the bun that's less equipped to deal with that moisture. So all you have to do is just make the sandwich the way you want it and then store it upside down. Um, if you want to get really hardcore, you could even like you know, around 11 a.m., flip it back, and that way you're getting equal moisture distribution. Ah, turning it. You have to flip it in the middle just to make sure. Oh, If uh, you want to be really hardcore, I don't think that's a necessity. I'm seeing, <laughs> I'm seeing a line of lunchboxes with a built-in timer <laughs> for flipping. Yes. Isn't that genius? Yes. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, it, it would be a, really a good lunchbox where they would, like, have a gyroscope. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it, it would sense sense the positioning. Because sometimes, you know, you put a sandwich in your bag and it gets jostled and then you take it well, out. Of course. You know, so you would, I think we really need gyroscope-equipped lunchboxes. Mm. That's the next, the next level. Oh, that might be something. That, that's your next product line, huh? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Don't steal that. <laughs> a small, a small cut. A small cut is all. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll, I'll cut you in on it. <laughs> so now from one of people's favorite foods, sandwiches, to one of people's least favorite food groups, and that's airplane food. 
Um, I want to bring a little bit of history on this. You know, Meals on Planes used to be these elaborate affairs. There was real silverware. In the 1950s, Pan Am attendants wandered the aisles with brisket and hunks of roast meat, and there was real food cooked in real ovens. And and in part, I thought this was really fascinating. They could compete on food because they had to compete. The government was regulating airfares until about 1978. So I guess even in the 70s, I remember being a kid on planes, and I didn't think the food was as bad as I think it is these days. And, you know, everybody's cutting costs. And so here's the science. Your taste is all dulled when you're flying miles above the earth in a dry, pressurized metal container. My scientific solution is that I always order vegetarian in any case, but I order Asian vegetarian when I can because it's usually spicy Indian food. And it's actually pretty good. That is my secret weapon, too, by the way. That's what I've always done. British Airways, you usually get a, like a chana masala. So good. I love British Airways, Asian vegetarian, which is Indian food. It's fantastic. So what are your science-based airplane food suggestions? Well, yeah, I mean, you guys are obviously ahead of the curve here. I, um, I'll have to consult you before my next before my next book because um, you're, you're absolutely right. Like, you want to seek out the foods on an airplane that have a lot of spice and flavoring. And that's because, as, as you said— uh, Cynthia, that Lufthansa actually did a study that your taste sensation goes down by thirty percent when you're in a plane because you're because it's so dry, and so the the obvious solution is you just got to kick up the seasoning to to help compensate. Um, so one of my solutions is actually you know those little three ounce shampoo and conditioner plastic bottles you can buy like at a pharmacy or drugstore. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. The travel containers, buy a few of those. But instead of putting shampoo and conditioner, you put in the sauces of your choice, sriracha, soy sauce, honey, um, lime juice, wh- whatever floats your boat. I mean, you you name it. You can bring them on your carry-on, and then you can just kick up any meal that they give you. You can you can work on it and make it better. I'm also a big fan of taking of asking politely for an extra bag of pretzels hmm. and crumbling crum- crumbling pretzels into my food because that adds salt and it also adds crunch. And while taste perception goes down in flight, crunch perception actually goes up. And so you can turn a run-of-the-mill chicken breast into a pretzel-encrusted chicken breast. Huh. Oh. And now I'm wondering how the pretzel flavors are going to go with my, you know, my chickpea curry. This is going to be the experiment for next time. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, you can actually get a sriracha keychain now. I feel like we should we should all be traveling with these little sort of packs of uh, of salt. I mean, because how many times could that help you out in life in general? Oh yeah, to have an extra bit of hot sauce with me, absolutely. Yeah, sauce is the the you know the Swiss Army knife of modern modern life. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Totally. I, I, I keep it at my desk at WNYC. I have uh, olive oil. I have sriracha. I have salt. I have a couple other little spices. It's not too elaborate, but you know, if I don't bring my own lunch and if I run out to grab something and I want to modify it in some way, I have, uh, I have some basic tools at the ready. That sounds like the perfect emergency chest. Yeah. <laughs> this is truly the sign of a pro eater. Yeah. Um, so I finally, I was just very tickled to see that you have a section in your book devoted to this very overlooked question, the impact of scented soaps on the taste of food. And of course, scent and food have a long history. Like in medieval times, you'd be burning spices and and incense for, you know, food and medicine were sort of the same thing. And the whole thing kind of went together in a health experience. Um, you get avant-garde restaurants like 
Alinea and Minibar, they pump out scents on cue just to sort of heighten the, the diner experience. But in between, where most of us live, we have the uncharted territory of restaurant bathroom scented soap selection. So can you talk us through your recommendations? Yeah, well, first I'm curious, Nikki, like is this something that you, is this something you've ever thought about? Yes. I mean, I love the work that, for example, the Spence Lab at Oxford does on thinking about how all these other sensory elements affect your eating experience. You know, the scent in the room, the lighting levels, the color, the plate, all of that stuff. So it had occurred to me, especially because I have Mrs. Meyer's geranium dishwashing soap, which is very highly scented, <laughs> that I was sort of conducting an inadvertent experiment, and perhaps that wasn't pairing so well with my, you know, with my chicken dinner. <laughs> Who knows? That, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. That's interesting. So, yeah, it's something that I've thought about. You know, you go to the bathroom in the middle of your meal, you wash your hands, and you end up with the scent of the soap on your hands. And each time you raise your fork or your spoon to your mouth to eat the next course, your hand is coming right up to your mouth and you're smelling that hand soap. And that does affect the flavor. I mean, that's why, like, if you're dealing with moist towelettes, I mean, you don't ever want to use those until you're done eating because the smell of them can be so pungent and off putting. You don't want to have the perception that your food tastes like, you know, al- uh, uh, rubbing alcohol. <laughs> yeah, like a weird alcohol scent. Yeah. Right. And so um, I, I think it's something that restaurants should put more thought into. The easiest solution, I think, would just be for them to use unscented soap. Um, but if they're going to use scented soap, I have encouraged in the book, I encourage restaurants to appoint a sopelier <laughs> who, who would be someone who would sort of come around the aisles of the or come around the tables with a cart. You know, like a like in a fancy restaurant, you'd see a cheese cart or a dessert cart. This is a soap cart. You choose your soap for the meal? That's right. Well, you, you can choose a different soap. The, the sopelier will recommend different scented soaps depending on what you've ordered so that there, you have pairings. So, like, for instance, you might have, um, you know, a, uh, a honey soap going with your uh, ricotta cheese appetizer. Mm. Or uh, if you, want, you, know, you could have a lavender soap to go with your ratatouille. Ooh. I think I'm going to vote for the unscented, personally. I have to admit <laughs> And I am going to go straight out and conduct this experiment and then declare myself New York City's first Sopelier. <laughs> you, you have go. a new job. I'm ditching podcasting. It's the Sopelier-ing <laughs> future. There's just one rule, Nikki, which is that the Sopelier has to wear a, a tuxedo or, or equivalent formal dress. Oh, a ball gown. I love it. <laughs> yes, yes. You have to really be dressed to the nines. You have to, you have to present yourself. Well, of course, it, you know, it, it, you have to give it the honor. Yeah, that's right, due. right. Befitting the position. In case people are tempted to <laughs> laugh at you, I don't know why, why they would do that, but just in right. case. Right, but isn't it the way in so many super, you know, trendy restaurants, it's like if you if you carry off some of these ridiculous ideas with enough pretension, um, then people come to convince themselves that if they, if it seems strange to them, they must be the ones who are wrong. And I think, I mean, in a in a world where we have people offering mineral water pairings with their food, why not soap? I mean, I'm surprised. Actually. Yeah, I mean, I think that most average eaters can distinguish the different scents of different soaps much more readily than they'll be able to distinguish the different flavors of mineral water. I think that is absolutely true. Seriously. So, okay, now we are we are post meal. Um, final question: You talk about gum. 
And you talk about it in terms of packaging and stick versus sort of the chiclet shape. And these are important questions and you make interesting arguments. But I was actually curious about something you don't write about, which is post-meal breath freshener pairings. So I was curious about what flavor gum to pop after a meal that ends, say, with molten chocolate cake. Or maybe you end with cheese. What gum complements that? Um, if you're ending with just a fortune cookie after a Chinese meal, you know, are you, is juicy fruit appropriate? Um, <laughs> and I was so I was curious if you had had any thoughts on this issue. I know it's not in the book, but I couldn't help wondering after the uh, the scented soap pairing question. Well, that that is a good question. Um, it's not something I've given a great deal of thought to uh, exact pairings, but I will say that one thing I do think about is sort of like what taste do you want to be left with at the end of a meal. So, like, if I'm down to a la- the last couple of bites on a plate and it's a couple of different food items, like, I-, I-, I will try to end with the flavor that I want to have left in my mouth. Now, certain flavors you don't want to linger in your mouth for too long. To me, I don't think I'd ever get tired of tasting chocolate cake. <laughs> um, so I don't know that I would go for any breath freshener after chocolate cake. And I don't think that uh, – I don't think my wife would be afraid to – give me a little kiss if I tasted like chocolate cake. Um, whereas if it was something full of garlic or fish or, or you know, very strong, pungent odors, um, maybe that would be something that I would, you know. But, you know, it, it's tough. Most breath-freshening devices like gum really only kind of mask bad breath and those flavors because the food is in your stomach and, and, and it's coming back up, essentially. That's really what causes bad breath. So the best way to combat it would be to like eat a few mint leaves. Mm. That may not be the actual best way. I haven't done the scientific research, but a better way than chewing gum would be to eat something. But that is a good argument for eating. I always eat this and people sometimes look at me funny, but there are those little mint garnishes often on desserts, those mint leaves, and I always eat them. I think they taste delicious. So you're making a very good argument for me to eat those mint leaves at the end of the meal. Yeah, see, Cynthia, Cynthia you and I are very simpatico. I, I, I approve of eating sushi for breakfast and I approve of you finishing your day with a, a mint leaf. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> I like mint leaves. Too, guys. I'm just, you're part of this group too. You're, you're, yeah. you're one of us, Nikki. It's cool. Don't worry. Thank you. want to be a pro eater too, like you, you guys. You are, I'm sure. Hey, you already knew to order the Indian food. If we have the airline food figured out, I think we're good to go. Yeah, yeah. we've That's cracked true. this. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, Well, I would like book two to feature an extended discussion of the science of breath freshener pairings post-meal, if that's okay. Absolutely. I'll make a note of it. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you so much for uh, joining us on Gastropod. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. So there you have it. Science can help you squeeze more eating pleasure out of even the most mundane of meals. I still think history might be the key for improving airline food, though. I know. Bring back the brisket, right? Ah, for the days in which airlines competed about which ones offered the best food. There are many more counterintuitive tips and tricks to be found in Dan Pashman's book. It's called Eat More Better, and you can hear him on his podcast, The Sporkful. We have links to both on our website, gastropod.com. And because we will do anything to get emails from you, dear listeners, we've got another giveaway. One copy of Eat More Better will be awarded to the listener who writes in with the best dessert and chewing gum slash breath cleanser combination. So if you favor rounding out your post-cheesecake pleasure with a stick of juicy fruit, or you're more of a mango kulfi followed by fennel seeds kind of person, let us know by emailing us at contact at gastropod.com. 
We'll choose our favorite to win a copy of the book. Meanwhile, we'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode all about the science and history of livestock breeding. I really think this is the craziest episode we've done so far. We have show trials of degenerate cattle in the 1920s. We have Badger Bluff Fanny Freddy, a.k.a. the best bull in America. And we explore the high-tech genomic science of livestock improvement, but also its deeply disturbing impact. Not just that they've transformed them into perfect milk machines, but they've transformed them into imperfect milk machines that have all these problems with mastitis and their utter shape and these you know, longevity issues because they're dying too early. And that is it for this episode. Thanks to Dan Pashman, author of Eat More Better and host of The Sporkful, for joining us on the show. As always, we're online at gastropod.com, where we've just added information about how to advertise on Gastropod. So if you think your company might want to reach some of the smartest, most open-minded, and most curious listeners in the world, check it out, and then give us a shout at contact at gastropod.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, where our handle is at gastropodcast. And that's it till next time.